Welcome back to the Nomadic Gregors podcast. I'm Anna. I'm Cameron. And today in our second episode of season three, we're going to talk about some of the differences in norms and culture across international schools. It can help you understand what to expect and how international schools operate on their day-to-day and on their curriculum in a way that is a little bit different to what you maybe use in your home country. Yeah, we won't, I mean, we won't, I don't think we'll get into curriculum today, but we will talk about, it's not just cultural norms, norms between schools, but norms between this location of where your school is. So cultural norms um, in country and compared to what you might have in your home country, but also some school norms, as Anna said as well. If this is the first time that you are running across one of our episodes, our goal is to share the ins and outs of international education as a way to build a life abroad that fulfills your goals of travel, diversity, experiencing other cultures, having a more varied life than what you might have at home working in the same place. Basically, how to be an expat as an international educator. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple, or Google, or any other uh, podcast platform. Or if you want to watch us on video, you can find us on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll start with, oh, and she didn't say it this time. What? To like, subscribe, and oh. review. I was correct her, but she didn't say it this time. So please like, subscribe, um, review. The reviews really help, especially on Apple and Spotify, and the likes and subscribes on YouTube, if you don't mind, if you like what we do. Exactly. So let's get into our topic for today. Again, we're going into cultural norms and differences, and I think the the most straightforward place to start would be languages and language barriers, differences, amalgamations of languages in international schools. Yeah, um, you know, it depends on where you are. You're always going to have, for the most part, students that are not going to speak English as their first language, but that's pretty common in the U.S. too. Um, although I'd say most commonly in the U.S. that you're going to run into that, likely with Spanish. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to know more about what's going on, learn Spanish. Um, But most of your students, whether they're from the host country or not, for the most part, will speak another language, whether that's English, Korean, Mandarin, French, who knows. They They may all speak different ones. English may be the common language, but... Chances are your students are going to be uh, speakers, English speakers of a second language. Yeah, and so while English is going to be the standard language of instruction in schools that are considered international schools, so students will be taking the vast majority of their courses, of their classes in English, they may also have um, other language requirements and other class requirements that might involve an additional language, but yes, you will usually have um, a portion of students that will have English as their first language and then a portion of students that will have English as their second language to varying degrees of fluency. A lot of that depends on the school and what they're willing to admit. Yeah, Um, but as she said, your students will generally always... um, Sorry, I'm worried about our setup. I'm worried... It's falling, and I'm not quite sure. 
No, it isn't. Okay, it just looks like it is. No, no, no. Um, they will always, for the most part, I don't think we've ever heard of anywhere where the students don't attend language class for the host country language as well. Even if they are native speakers, at least at the elementary level. Usually at high school, um, they might be given an option if they want to continue down that path, but that's pretty common as well. Yeah, so in many countries, taking classes in the host country language is required. In some countries, you may also have to take sort of a social studies kind of class um, to learn the history of the country and so on. So in Korea, for example, you have to take Korean social studies or Korean history in middle and high school. Our students here in Saudi Arabia have to take um, Islamic culture. So it varies from place to place, but usually there's definitely a host country language requirement um, and sometimes uh, social studies, culture, local studies kind of class that is required for graduation later on. Yeah. So one of the downsides of this, especially if you've taught in a, in a school back home where there are a large number of uh, speakers who speak a different language than yourself, but they all speak the same one, is you can get aspects of bullying because the students will realize and know that you might not speak the same language they do. So it's much easier for them to be openly mean, cruel, aggressive towards another student because they know that you don't understand it. Um, that doesn't mean another student, especially you know when they're younger, they won't say, hey, mister, hey, miss, so-and-so said this, but that's not really much of a problem solver for you as an educator. Um, so that sort of brings us to, you know, another point, which is... There's one more thing that can happen when you have large groups of students among your, <clears throat> among your class that speak a language other than the common language of instruction, and it's a language that you also don't speak, and it's that it can bring with it some classroom management issues since you might have a big group of students chatting away in a language that you're not aware of, and that might be difficult to navigate as a teacher, especially when you're new and you're not sure if that's part of the cultural practice or if that's something that you should interrupt or not. Yeah, you know, Dominicans are loud and chatty from the kids to the staff meetings. And that'll take some getting used to depending on where you are. Um, which, well, both of those bring us to, you know, how much host country language do you need to know? And generally the answer is none. That being said, it's always nice to, when you're traveling, when you're uh, moving to a place, it's always nice to know a few basic words, please, thank you, how much. Um, Too expensive. Where's the restroom? <laughs> you know. Do you take card? Yeah, can I have the bill, the check? <laughs> it's just respectful to know those, those little things. Uh, depending on where you are, you know, in, in Shanghai, if we try to speak uh, Mandarin with any restaurant workers, for the most part, uh, they would try to speak English with us. And so it didn't really work out in anyone's favor because their English was usually somewhat better than our Mandarin. But that being said, you may want to learn a little bit, A, to be respectful, and B, to maybe learn the swear words and some things like that. Ask a, ask a host country teacher just so you can, you know, Pick up on some of those things if one of your students might say something, or maybe if you're taking, they're taking a test or doing something, they may say something and share answers. You know, not that they do, but 
kids are kids and they'll try to get away with what they, what they can get, get away with at times. Yeah, so of course, translation apps and language apps have come a long, long way in the time that we became expatriates. So now there's so much more available and you know technologically accurate to help you with translations in your everyday. So in most places, and the, the rule of urban versus rural areas definitely applies, you will probably need very little of the local language to get by. Um, and of course, what typically happens when people are expatriates is that you tend to visit Western catering or Western friendly establishments where there's English speaking staff or at times the staff may be required to speak in English with you. Starbucks in Shanghai, for example, staff was required to speak to people in English, even if they were Mandarin speakers. Um, and that might mean that in practice, you might not need your, you know, intensive course that you took in the summer or something like that. But as you go into the rural areas, you are probably going to need more of the local language. However, one thing that has to be said or can be said for a positive about learning the local language is the ability to access the local economy and be able to access possibly goods that are at a lower price point, navigate those transactions with vendors that don't speak English, which could mean some financial advantages. It happened for us in the Dominican Republic, for sure, um, but can also give you a little bit more versatility and immerse yourself in the culture a little more than you would if you are only sticking to the um, expat-friendly areas of town. Yeah. So for the majority of you, no matter where you move, there's going to be an English language barrier. Um, you know, there are exceptions, whether you already speak Spanish, whether you... Or French. French. Um, Mandarin. Mandarin being a big one. Um, French, maybe not nearly as much, but some. Uh, but, you know, I've lost my train of thought. Languages that might be helpful if you become an expat. No, that's not what I was saying. Um, oh, is that for the most part, you will be the non-native speaker. And that will be a change both in the classroom and outside the classroom. So it's something to be mindful of um, as you move to a new country. Is that, you know, with the exception, like I said, of a few people, you will not be speaking the local language. And that's the same, The to add on to that also, um, and to what you were mentioning before, that at times you try to practice the local language with people and people revert back to English, that also means that even when you are trying to pick up the local language, it might be difficult to build intentional practice because people might not be as willing to carry a conversation in the local language with you. So if that is something that you're really committed to, then that's where a class or a conversation partner, maybe within the faculty at your school, could be helpful. Yeah. So what we're talking about, at least the local cultural stuff, we'll, we'll stick on that topic. And, um, you know, there'll be different, when you get to a new country, there'll be different styles of dress. Uh, things, well, I mean, maybe. It, it depends really what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. But your school will be dependent on your administration for the most part. Um, I would say on average, international schools are 
a little bit more strict than you find in, say, U.S. public schools as far as uh, what teachers are required to wear, but that's not true of every school by any stretch. I've had contracts where I was requi required to wear a shirt and tie every day to work as an elementary teacher, and now, um, you know, I would say our current school is a bit, it's not a bit, it's far more lax um, without being, you know, so dressed down that it feels like you rolled out of bed and went to work. There's a nice balance there where teachers are comfortable with what they're wearing without having to worry about, without admin having to worry about, okay, are my teachers, is my staff underdressed and do they still look professional? Yeah, so every school is going to have different norms when it comes to dress code, when it comes to what is expected or required of teachers to wear. Um, and some of those have to do with the way that teachers are perceived as professionals, the culture of the school, and of course, um, kind of the, the level of school that you might be teaching. Typically, what we see is that early years and elementary teachers tend to dress down a little bit more, but that makes a lot of sense, especially if you are in an early year school that follows play-based learning, you know, teachers are on the floor all the time with their students and they're outside and doing things on trees and that kind of stuff. So it's to be expected that the dress code for those teachers should be maybe a little bit more relaxed, same thing with elementary. And then as you move up the echelon of grade levels, then it gets a little bit more formal. But in some cases, that formality may not necessarily be required. And also, um, dress expectations outside of school may be different than dress expectations um, in school. So for example, in our current school, um, I can wear sleeveless shirts in school, outside of school that might not be appropriate because of the country's um, cultural norms. So there are some things that are slightly different, but of course that's something that you can pick up over time. And it's something that the students will tap into as well. If there's no school uniform, uh, they will, you know, again here, they will be a bit more dressed down because they're not out in the open per se as they are uh, outside the compounds. But it just depends on, on where you are. I would say a fair number of international schools also have some form of uniform requirement. But um, yeah. yeah, so let's actually pause for a moment and go into that. So in our experience in international schools, we've seen actually kind of three different types of student dress expectations. We've seen open dress where students wear regular clothes and maybe have a kit for PE and swim and that kind of stuff. Um, we've also seen schools that kind of have a partial uniform where students wear a polo with the school logo and then wear bottoms, sometimes with some requirements, sometimes not. And then schools that have full-fledged uniforms, some even going as far as having summer uniforms and winter uniforms. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there'll be a different style in dress, but as I said, I think for the most part you can expect a slightly more formal dress for staff than you would back, at least in the U.S. I can't speak to the U.K. or Australia or anywhere in the U.S. public schools. 
you know, a higher echelon U.S. private school or even a well-regarded public school staff might still dress uh, more appropriately, more, not, not appropriately, but formal. formally, but, you know, there's not, there's not jeans and t-shirts for the most part. Jeans maybe depends on the school, but not a lot of t-shirts, certainly no sandals, at least, you know, not the flip-flops, flip-flop kind of sandals. So it, you'll find that the, the code of conduct for a teacher's style of dress is generally a little bit higher than and it will be back in the U.S. And on that note, if you are a parent going into an international school, you're going to be faculty, um, and you have children enrolled, if, if your school requires uniforms, typically that is something that you are going to have to pay out of pocket. So depending on the school requirements, you may be looking at a significant expense for uniforms at the beginning of the year. Sometimes international schools will have some sort of secondhand shop where you can buy secondhand uniforms. Sometimes that's not available, but it is something definitely to think about that at least for PE, you may have to buy uniforms and those are not part of your compensation package. Even if the school is covering tuition for faculty children, you still have to pay for your own uniforms. Well, we assume for all schools. We don't actually know because we don't have kids. Right, but it's, it's an expected expense and from what I've heard from faculty colleagues that have children, typically uniforms are something that they have to pay for. Yeah. Um, so speaking of parents, you know, one of the things that we're not going to get too deep into it, but when you go, go to a new country, depending on the country, there will be a different expectation between uh, the relationship you might have with the students of your parents. Now, in the U.S., it can also vary. You know, I grew up in a small town where lots of my teachers were friends with school parents. That was the norm, but it was a small town. Uh, but abroad... You'll either find a lot of that or none, none of that. Mostly because what you'll find is a lot of the parents are expats themselves and expats tend to congregate together with like-minded people. So you might say in China live in a compound and just be around the same people. You frequent the same places, same stores, same restaurants. And it's a lot easier to be friendly than you might with your students' parents back home, partially because you're in more contact with them, partially because you may not have as access to as many uh, foreigners and expats as you would anywhere else. But on that note, though, I think that there's a little bit more understanding among the parents in the international school community that teachers have lives outside of school. And so usually things that you may find I'm, yourself kind of... I'm going to preface that with amongst expat parents. Correct. Correct. Expat, expat parents understand for the most part that, you know, as a teacher, you have a life outside of school. No, you're not obligated to answer all their questions in the supermarket, that kind of thing. And, you know, if they see you out and about, typically they're going to be very respectful and not try to bombard you or anything like that. And and, and maintain those boundaries. There's always the outliers that, you know, bombard you in the supermarket with a million questions when that may not be something that you want to engage in. But there, there seems to be more understanding than what we see at times in, we're speaking from, from the U.S. example, from what we see at times 
in some of some of what you see as criticism of teachers for say having social media accounts or not answering emails after school hours or things like those yeah so on the other side of that though um, you'll have oftentimes you and even expats to an extent depending on where they're from or language barriers but host country parents who may have grown up in a very different mindset educationally than what your school operates on. Uh, they may view you as more of a professional than um, just someone who's there working. I mean, I don't, that's not the right, correct way to phrase that, but that it's your job, that you are there to be a teacher all day, every day. There's a higher expectation among some cultures about what a teacher has to do and what their role is and so you know you always have unfortunately parents that see you as glorified daycare but you also have other parents that see you as the teacher and the expectation is that you'll be the tutor and the after-school activity person and have a much more expanded role in their child's life than than what you should yeah and that can vary from country to country but also, you know, as we said, parent to parent. It just depends on the local culture where uh, and how education is not just viewed, but uh, the approaches and the mindset that people take when they enter into the world of education in that host country. So be mindful of that. We'll talk more maybe in another podcast about parent-teacher relationships. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, you know, you'll have some other local requirements. Um, aside from languages, Anna mentioned you might take some local history classes, but oftentimes too you get to celebrate local uh, holidays and fun things like that. You might, in China, there's Chinese New Year, there's Dragon Boat Festivals, there's, um, I don't know, there's another one I can't remember. Well, in the time we've been here in Saudi Arabia, the country has added two public holidays. So yeah. Founders Day in February, and this year they've started celebrating Flag Day in March. So those are new festivities that we are now trying to incorporate to our calendar. And my expectation is that as time goes by and the festivity takes hold, events are going to become more of a norm in our calendar and so on. So it's always kind of a mixture of host country celebrations and kind of more school community celebrations so things like International Day or United Nations Day for example yeah um, you know Chusak in Korea or Diwali in India now while you get to celebrate the local cultures be mindful that just because even if you're working at an American school doesn't mean you get to celebrate American holidays yeah you may be working right through Thanksgiving and you may be working and or not allowed to celebrate Halloween. I don't know if you can in the U.S. Have not. you? Have we ever had Thanksgiving off? I think we did in China. No, we didn't. It was PD. Uh, there was always well, PD during was, those days. Whatever. Um, so you'll, you might, you know, you're not going to get an Easter holiday unless you're in a Catholic country. Then you might, um, well, I don't know, no Martin Luther King or President's right. Day. None of those kinds of things. So you'll still get, you know... A Christmas or um, uh, what's the other one? Hanukkah, because that falls generally where winter break is, and you might get Easter if depending on when spring break is. But for the most part, you may or may not get any U.S. holidays, so or U.K. holidays. So be mindful that that's going to be a change for some of you, especially if you love Thanksgiving. You love spending with your family 
and having a big meal. You can and still do those things. It just may not happen on the day, and you may not be with your family. You Oftentimes, expats get together during those kinds of holidays, and Americans will come together. People will bring dishes. It'll be a big potluck. Yeah. On, on a very random side note, depending on where you go, if you are if you are deeply attached to Thanksgiving, depending on where you go, just be aware that a turkey may become a luxury. Um, in some in some countries, a turkey can go for literally hundreds of dollars. In China, they were hundreds of dollars ten years ago. Um, so not necessarily attainable. Um, they may vary in size. So, yes, holidays that you're used to are going to look a little bit different abroad. In some cases, they might just not be a holiday proper, so you may have to modify the way that you celebrate or just move your celebration to a weekend, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, one last thing that we'll just touch on briefly that you might, uh, and if you've seen the news, you know, you know, there might be differences in your host country's beliefs and people's orientations or between genders and... That's something to keep in mind both is how your students might interact with each other in the classroom, depending on whether the majority host country, majority not, as well as how you might be or your partner might be perceived outside of the school. The schools are, for the most part, are fairly inclusive. Our school is very inclusive. Um, but, you know, the schools don't get to dictate what things are like outside of those walls. So just... As we said in an earlier podcast, do your research, check out Tales, check out ISR, check out Reddit, check out, just Google the country, see what it's like, and get, get some ideas ahead of time so you know what to expect when you arrive. Correct. That doesn't mean that you may not find yourself, as Cameron was saying, in a very welcoming community and that host country individuals might necessarily be mean or aggressive or violent or anything like no. that. That doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean that you, when you, it's general traveler, general expatriate, cardinal rule, be aware of where you're going in terms of culture, be respectful, be kind to people, and what you'll find is that most of the time, 99% of the time, people will be respectful and kind back, regardless of their beliefs. Yeah. So that's a little bit about some of the differences and norms you might experience between the host code country and yourself. And so now we'll dig a little bit into some differences between schools you might notice. And this one's a little bit harder to pin down because you all come from different kinds of schools and different places. And, you know, from when we were young, at least when I was young in the U.S., school was pretty much just, here's a textbook. You're going to, you know, we're going to do some workbook pages and that's it. So, you know, I think the big push, both, I see in the U.S. too, depending on where you are, but especially internationally, is inquiry-based learning, whether that's the IB program, whether that's, um, you know, using different frameworks like C3, whether that's uh, project-based learning, all those kinds of things. There's a bigger push for that amongst international schools, at least in the primary and middle school levels. And then once you get to high school, you'll find a lot of the same as you might back home. You'll find the diploma program for the IB. AP is pretty common in American schools. Uh, and I'm not sure what else. 
I mean, it, I would say high school seems a bit more closely aligned with schools back home than elementary middle. Definitely. There's more traditional um, modeling, and you see that even in the way that grading is done. Um, you see standards-based grading more often used in elementary and middle school, and then once you get to high school, you get into more specific grading that may look like the traditional letter grades. Um, and of course, in some cases, um, courses are very much college preparatory courses like advanced placement and like the diploma program. So that kind of grading is a little bit more aligned with what a student might find in a college or a university. So those differences in grading definitely do carry across um, the, the school divisions and they sometimes create a little bit of confusion, especially for parents. Um, if they, especially if they come from a traditional style of grading, that might be something to educate parents on how do you evaluate in elementary and middle if you have standards-based grading, because that's going to look very different. So that, that comes to more than just grading, that comes to the approaches to education. If you are in a country like China where traditional education is rote and more memorization based, or Korea for example, um, where that's more of the norm, you know, students go to Hagwons after school just to learn, to learn, to learn. That concept of inquiry and having discussion and students leading that discussion can be very difficult for a lot of parents. And yes, you need to talk to parents about it, but it's also something that you want to talk to the school about and say, all right, how do we facilitate this conversation with parents? How do I help them understand what our goal is here at school and what my goal is with their child in the classroom? Same thing goes for homework. Um, in many cultures, there is an expectation that children will have homework, that children will have homework for a number of hours each, each evening or so. Most international schools have homework policies that vary per division. Um, and usually that's something that teams work very closely on, on ensuring that there's a balanced workload um, for things that go home. Um, in high school, high school is a different ballpark. Um, I think that overall high school courses may necessitate more homework than, than elementary and middle, but there are differences in that. And sometimes that can also be a point of difficulty or contention between schools and parents or what the parents expect and what the school is going for. Common things are like parents not seeing reading as homework or reading as a daily activity. Some parents want more strict approaches to reading, make my kid read this, as opposed to have your kid develop a reading habit with things that they're interested in. And Sometimes those are just cultural differences. Yeah, and again, that'll come not necessarily just from host country parents, but parents, other expats who come, might come from countries Definitely. where that's the norm. You know, we've Definitely. been asked for, oh, can we have a year-long uh, full syllabus like you might get in a high school course or a college class and you know at the lower levels it doesn't work that way because oftentimes you're making shifts on the fly based on student learning and student progression. Uh, we've been asked for textbooks and I think you'll find that again most international schools and I think even the US, maybe in the US, I don't know, I don't, know uh, don't use textbooks and with homework you know this, the research shows that uh, as for younger students, the homework doesn't really provide any benefit, not for the sake of giving homework. So, yeah, so that's the norm, I would say, on average. On average. 
in international schools. You will have some schools that will subscribe to that, and that's that's fine. Just know that there'll be might be a difference in educational philosophy wherever you go. And that's as we said last season, something to research and know about the school as you go into the interviews, as you um, prepare to move there and, and prepare yourself for how to teach a class in that place. So those are things that are great questions to ask to email buddies. Those are great questions to ask on your second interview. Second interviews are typically more about curriculum and methods of teaching and so on. So those are great places to start asking those questions. Things like homework, conferencing, communication with parents, uh, model of grading, what learning management systems schools use, and so on. Those are great questions to ask. And of course, as you get closer to joining the school, hopefully your email buddy can tell you more. Again, in our current school, we were very fortunate to be invited to um, meetings ahead of time before we were um, starting our contract. So in the months prior, we went to department meetings, we went to middle school meetings, and those were really informative and, and helped kind of guide our mind into like what we were walking into and what kind of what kind of legwork we had to bring in, how we could help build a program that was more robust. Yeah. All of that said though, you might still come you'll still come across the same things you will back home. If you're in a British school for the most part, they might operate using a British national curriculum. Um, we mentioned AP in an American school. More and more schools in the U.S. are doing at least the diploma program as part of the IB. There are a few, uh, a few PYP and NYP schools. You'll find Common Core is pretty common uh, at American schools. Uh, NGSS, Common for Science Standards. Lots of elementary schools use uh, Lucy Calkins Readers Writers Workshop, although that's shifting as well. Everyday Math, Eureka Math. Yeah, Hooten Mifflin. You'll find a lot of the same things as well. Um, and it just depends on the school, but the approach to using those things might change uh, somewhat slightly. Uh, Anna did mention testing. I, I would find that most schools, at least as far as we've ever been to, tend to do at least some form of standardized testing, usually in the form of the NWEA MAP test, because that offers a wide range of scores to compare students to, not just you know a paper-based test that's only comparing that school. You know, uh, with international schools, they'll usually choose a region that they might compare to. When we were in Korea, it included, I think, the Vancouver, BC area where student scores were compared to, and so those are not uncommon in international schools as well. But they're also not high stakes like they might be back home. So that's pretty handy. Yeah, so you get the rather helpful data that you can get through those standardized, te standardized tests that provide development of students through a skills continuum. And of course, now we have a number of technology platforms that create individualized skill plans for students based on those scores, like Khan Academy and iXL to mention dimension two. Um, so it is helpful to have that data, especially when you are new to the school, if you can see historical data for students because they've been in the school for a number of years and have taken those tests for a number of years, you can see a pretty clear progression, but definitely not in the same way that 
standardized testing is as high stakes in some states in the US, for example. Exams in higher divisions may be more common in high school um, depending on the subject. Um, in some cases, exams that you take kind of at the end of the semester, for example, may be a practice test or in preparation for the big AP test or the big IB exam and so on. Um, so they, they may carry a different kind of way and be more of a long-term preparation tool. Yeah, so all that in mind, you know, just know that the educational philosophy of a school might be very different, at least compared to a U.S. public school. Again, private schools are a whole other ballgame because they, they don't have to adhere to necessarily the same standards. And I think, you know, if you're coming from a British school to a British international school, for the most part, you'll find a lot of the same, uh, which makes it a little bit easier, but also why it tends to be British and Australian and South Africans who work at those schools versus Americans. Not to say that it doesn't happen. It does. Um, but it's just not as common because we're not as used to or familiar with the systems that they have in place. So, all of that said, you know, one of the other things that we're going to talk about today is we mentioned before that you might have more resources available to you at an international school. And while this is true, one area where you probably won't is in student support. Uh, unlike the United States and Europe where students are afforded the ability to attend schools and have services provided for them by the governments, um, regardless of what needs they may or may not have, international schools don't have that. We don't have students, for the most part, with severe needs. Um, you will find common things. I mean, I think this is anywhere anymore, students with ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, and, and even dyslexia, uh, and some of those are still not as common as they would be back home. Because it's only been in the last, I would say, probably five to seven years when international schools have really sort of ramped up their effort to start offering more inclusion for students with um, different needs. And so because of that, many parents might be reluctant to have a student who needs extra support be tested to see if they truly do, because it may hinder, or in the past, it may have hindered their ability to get their child into a different international school if they moved somewhere else. Not because the school didn't want the child, uh, but because they simply didn't have the support in place to be able to provide the best education for that child. But as I said, that is changing, and we see more and more of that um, changing with every year. Yeah, but it is definitely true that international schools don't offer the same level and the same extent of services for students with different needs than you would at a school in the US or in the European Union. The, there's not the same way of legal requirements even um, to, re, to require schools to provide those services. Um, student support that is available or learning support teachers may or may not be certified special education teachers. Some of them may be teachers that transition out of the general classroom to provide student support, maybe, for example, reading specialists um, or math specialists or something like that, but not necessarily a special education teacher the way that, say, we know them in the US. Also, additional professionals like speech language pathologists. Those are on the up and up. Like yeah, SLP, exactly. SLPs are on the way up. Yeah, but they were definitely not the norm 
when we came abroad 10 years ago, um, and depending on where you go, 12. they... 12 years ago. 12? Yeah. Okay. For me. Right. Um, they may not be as available as as they are in other countries, or the schools, the international school, may not have someone to recommend outside of the school because those professionals are not as readily available. Yeah, you know, most schools now will have counselors. Um, uh, I don't think we've ever worked in school without a counselor. But no. again, you might not find support for students that has severe um, autism. You, you almost won't. If they, if, they have, if, they have, if they have autism and um, you might not find support for that in international schools. That said, though, again, things like MTSS, the multi-tiered systems of support, if you've ever heard of that, that is becoming more and more popular amongst international schools. That's trending, becoming the norm. Um, and while it's not a support service, uh, RTI is pretty common response to intervention. Uh, is, is the standard amongst most international schools as well to the best of what is available that the staff can give them. As well as in classroom stuff, there's a lot of res responsive classroom. That's a, that's a pretty popular one as well. And I'm sure many of you have heard of responsive classroom. It can be really great and um, gives a chance for students to really work on empathy, work on grit, all those kinds of things. So one thing that you may see in international schools when it comes to student support and when it comes to learning support is that you may see scaled down services. So as much as the school can provide within the resources that they have, accommodations are pretty standard and, and pretty easy to get when there's a diagnosed disability. Um, things like extra time, things like closer to the teacher in the front of the room, standard accommodations, um, things like, what is that, speech, speech to text, text to speech, yeah. when you have the headphones. Um, so kind of those, those additional audio aids, but you are in most international schools, not to my knowledge, you're not gonna have the same very structured IEP, Individualized Education Program, that you may have in a school in the United States, for example. Not as much paperwork, not as many meetings. It's going to look different because it's going to be kind of a bit scale, more scaled down than you may be used to if you are working with special education professionals. Yeah, so, you know, I've never seen a student come in with an IEP that's been able to be 100% met, at least not at schools I've worked at. It doesn't Correct. mean it doesn't happen. 504s are a bit more common. Um, you know, they're a little bit more toned down as far as what the needs might be. Very few schools have someone who can be one-to-one -one with a student all day, if need be. And as we mentioned, language is a, is a big issue, not because students have, you know, uh, different needs and that, they just don't speak English. But not every school is going to afford the opportunity for students to take English as a language either. So it may be on you to help, you know, this nine-year-old student who doesn't speak any English try to meet grade level requirements or make growth uh, without any overwhelmingly huge support from outside the classroom. So for example, for English language acquisition, what we've seen in our experience in our national schools is, again, a mixture of models. We've seen schools that have English language classes for all students at specific levels, like elementary, for example, 
we have we've seen other schools where students that are new to English are enrolled in English as a second language for a period of time then they're assessed and if their level is functional enough to be somewhat independent or with moderate support in the classroom to be okay then they transition to host country language classes like everybody else and then other schools where there is no English language acquisition instruction, not direct one, not a dedicated class for students that are new to English. And students are kind of learning as they go. They may see a student support specialist during a response to intervention period and get some English language acquisition um, instruction, but not a full-on ESL class like we may know from other places. So there's, yeah. there's, there's variation for sure. It does mean that you may find yourself in some schools with a student that comes in and is very, very, very new to English. Yeah. But, you know, again, you might have the opposite where you're in a, in a school that uh, has plenty of resources and caters to that very, very well. But just know that it, it won't be the same regardless as you move to a new school or between schools internationally. It likely won't be the same as you had it back home. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you know from before is better or what you are going into an international school is better or the opposite. It's just going to mean that it's different. Yeah. So I think that's about all we have for today. Um, you know, tune in next week, as they say, and we'll be taking a look at... Uh, we talked about educational philosophies today, so next week we'll be taking a deeper look at curriculum within schools. Not necessarily so much what curriculums they use or don't use, but we will look at that as well. We talked a little bit about it today, but we'll be looking at what to expect when you jump a new school about whether there is or is not a curriculum. Exactly. So if you do think about other cultural things or aspects of instruction of school day-to-day -day that you are curious about whether they're affected by culture or that you're not sure what to expect in an international school, leave us a comment on YouTube or you can always reach out in our social media platforms, Instagram or Twitter at Nomadic Gregors and we'll be happy to answer your questions. Yeah, and if you would like to schedule a meeting with us, we should have a meeting link up on our website probably by the end of April is, is our goal, um, where you can schedule a consultation with us and just talk about whether you're looking for a job, whether you, you know whether you want to stay at your job, um, whether you are curious, just curious about international education, which again is really who we're aiming this for. Those of you that have never been abroad, whether you're fresh out of college and want to get some experience, or you've been in your host country, your home country for five, ten years, and said, you know what, I, I want to go experience something new. That's that's uh, that's who we're talking to right now, but. For those of you experienced international educators, let us know what, what you think we can add, improve upon, take out. We're happy, Absolutely. To, we're happy to hear it. We hope that you found this helpful, informative, entertaining in any way. If you think that someone else will find it helpful, please share. Sharing is caring. Remember, you can find us on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts if you like the audio, or on YouTube if you prefer video. We will be back next week with more insights on international education right here. See you next time. Yeah, please like, subscribe, and rate. That's the other one, right? Yeah, it is. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.